Welcome to Freedom Through Faith. Prepare to be blessed as pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau leads us into the anointed study of the Word of God, teaching and empowering you how to impact your world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, teaching you how to receive the blessings and provisions of God and how to walk through this life with Freedom Through Faith. And now, here's Pastor Robert Thibodeau. We now rejoin today's message already in progress. In chapter 9, it really details us. Let me just go into a little bit of chapter 9. Then verily, the first covenant also had ordinances of divine service and an earthly sanctuary. The first covenant had an earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first in which the lampstand and the showbread, and it goes on down to talk about that, and the veil, and then the holy place, and the golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant, and in uh, verse 4, keeps going all the way down. In verse 9 it says, there was a, or This was a figure for the time then present. That's all it was. It was only a figure in which were offered gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service, what? Perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in food and drink and washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them till the time of reformation or the regeneration. It wasn't until Jesus came and began to minister in the true tabernacle. Because in verse 11 it says, But Christ becoming a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, and, and so forth. Christ ministers in the heavenly sanctuary, the holy of holies, where God is. He doesn't minister in a shadowy temple on earth. Many people think that he ministers in the local church. No, he doesn't. He's not. Jesus does not occupy the church building. Amen? Let me give you an illustration that will help you understand this. The Greek philosophers had an interesting and very dominating thought. If you studied uh, Greek philosophy or anything, I, I studied in college, uh, both as bachelor's degree and as master's degree, we had classes on this. But the Greeks always thought in two terms, of, in terms of two worlds. One was a real world, one was unreal. You may have studied about Plato. You may have studied a little bit about the... You know, Aristotle, polemic, and some of these other things have to do with philosophy in those days. And you may have run across this kind of a dual concept, especially because that was the basic doctrine of Plato. But Plato always said somewhere there was a real, and that what we saw was the unreal. The world of space and time was a world of shadows. It was a world of copies, pale copies at best. A world of unreal reflections. But somewhere, there was a real world. And he talks about the universal horse, for example. That all other horses are just a shadow somewhere in some place of the true horse. Or the true chair is somewhere. Everything else is only a shadow chair. That was Greek philosophy. This is only a shadow world that we live in. Somewhere there is a real world. And in that real world, there's the universal horse and the universal chair, the universal tree or whatever. That was Plato's attempt at 
explaining these things, and I think it can relate here. Because the writer of Hebrews is saying very much the same thing. The writer of Hebrews is not a Greek philosopher, but he's speaking about the revelation of God. And in a very very real sense, the Greeks weren't too far off. There is a real world. Where we are at now is not the real world. In terms of God's revelation of the Old Covenant, it was all just shadows and types and pictures and reflections, all from the pattern which is in heaven. The earthly temple, the earthly tabernacle, is a place that was only a copy of the real temple of God. Earthly worship is only a remote reflection of real worship of what that will be when we get to heaven. The earthly priesthood is only an inadequate shadow of the real priesthood. In fact, if you go back to Exodus chapter 25, verse 40, and it'll be quoted you as a matter of fact in Hebrews in verse 5 in a minute, but you'll find that when Moses received the instructions about how to build the tabernacle and all of its furnishings, God said to him, Look that you make them after their pattern which was shown to you in the mountain. For the pattern was heavenly. All the earthly things are only pictures of the pattern. So Jesus is superior to Aaron, number one, because he's seated. And number two, because he serves in the real sanctuary, a superior sanctuary, not pitched by men, but pitched by God himself. And he serves in the real sanctuary. Amen. Now in verse 3, wow. In verse 3, he begins to pursue his argument from the general to the particular. Let's say that this, that because there are some great things here. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. So the question can come up at this point. Well, if he's finished his work and he's up there in heaven, what's he got to do? Well, every high, every high priest is appointed to be a minister, right? If he's a legitimate high priest, that means he'll be busy. He'll be ministering in the area of gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, so it is a necessity that this man must have somewhat also to offer. If it's a standard commodity for priests to do it, then Jesus will be doing it. Because he's the perfect priest. You see, the Jew at this point would say, well, that's no priest at all. You don't have any priest at all. He may, he may just be up there sitting around, but he hasn't got anything to do. There's no ministry there. So therefore, he's not a true high priest. And so the writer simply says this, Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. So it's necessary this man does as well. So did Jesus offer sacrifices? Yes, he did. He offered the sacrifice of himself. But notice the term gifts. Now in chapter 5, verse 1, the statement there that every high priest taken from among, among men is ordained for men in things to God that he may offer gifts and sacrifices. And the gifts idea simply divides sacrifices into the two kinds that are in Scripture. Remember, there are two different kinds of sacrifice. The first kind of sacrifice was the meal offering, right? In the meal offering, there was no bloodshed. You merely brought the meal offering as it was. And the other kind of sacrifice was the blood sacrifice. And that's the distinction we're seeing here. He's simply saying, 
every priest is involved in both kinds of offerings. Bloodless meal offerings, gifts, and blood offerings, sacrifices for sin. So Jesus, if he's the true high priest, will also be doing both of these things. Ah, well, I understand that, Brother Bob. He did the first, the sacrifice of blood, when he offered his own blood on the mercy seat, when he offered himself as a sacrifice. But I don't understand about the gifts. Is he still ministering to the area of gifts? If so, what are they? All right, let's take a moment and explain it to you. In the Old Testament, all of the meal offerings had to do with thanksgiving and dedication. When a man brought a meal offering, he was thanking God and dedicating his life to God. It was an act of dedication, not an atonement for sin. It was a personal dedication, a personal commitment to God. And what he's doing is praising God and thanking God and acknowledging God in his life and committing himself to live for God. That's what those sacrifices meant. And so we see Jesus continuing to do this for us. For none of us, watch this here, listen to me now. None of us can praise God or can dedicate ourselves to God or can truly worship God or truly thank God unless we do it through Jesus Christ. We always come to God by Him, the scripture says, right? So in a sense, Christ continues, even now, to minister gifts to God. Our gifts, glory to God. As we bring the thanks and the praise and the worship of our hearts and dedication of our lives to praise God with, Christ takes those gifts, the gifts of our thanks, our praise and our worship and our dedication, and offers them to God. So he still ministers in the area of gifts. He no longer ministers in the area of sacrifices. He only needed to do that, what? One time. And so he says in effect, in verse 3, that he is a legitimate high priest who continues to minister. Amen? In verse 4, he goes on to talk about the fact that he's a heavenly priest. It says, for if he were on earth, he would not be a priest. Now why wouldn't Christ be a priest if he was on earth? If he'd been designed to be an earthly priest. What's the one thing that would have withheld him from the priesthood? He's from the wrong tribe, wasn't he? He could not qualify to be an earthly priest because he was not born of Levi. He wasn't part of the Levitical priesthood. So therefore, he'd be disqualified. So he simply says, and Jews have said at this point in their mind, well, if he's a priest, what's he doing up there? Why does he come down here when we need him? Well, he can't be on earth ministering, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. In other words, God has set a certain ceremonial law in motion. That priesthood still exists on earth. God does not need other priests to do what the priesthood does. It's interesting to note that God never confuses substance with shadow. He never mixes the two. So Jesus cannot be an earthly priest for the very fact that he's from the wrong tribe. He has to minister somewhere else. And the point is, he does minister somewhere else, in a better place, which makes his priesthood a better priesthood. And verse 5 goes on to talk about this. Who serve, these priests who serve 
as an example and shadow of heavenly things. Those priests in verse 4 who offer gifts on this earth, according to the law, are examples and a shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished by God when he was about to make the tabernacle, this is Exodus 25 again, it says, says he, that you make all things according to the pattern shown to you in the mountain. In other words, even Moses must have known that on this earth, that's not the real thing. It's just a shadow, a type and shadow of the pattern he saw in heaven. So Christ must be a priest of a superior sanctuary. He cannot be one in the earthly priesthood because he's the wrong tribe. There doesn't need to be confusion here because there are already earthly priests doing what they've been set up to do. But they are only examples of the shadow of the heavenly priesthood and the heavenly temple, the heavenly holy place, because that's first. Amen. The word example means a sketch, an outline, or a copy. You could also translate it as figure in chapter 9, verse 24. This was only a copy of the real sanctuary. Amen. The second word is shadow, skia. It says exactly what it means. It's a shadow or a silhouette. Do you know that a shadow has no independent substance or any independent existence? You can't prove it's there. It has no existence at all. It exists only as proof of the fact there's a reality somewhere else, right? When you see a shadow, you can look around and say, something must be making the shadow. The shadow has no independent existence at all. It cannot exist without the real. And that's true of the Aaronic priesthood. It has no independent existence in and of itself. It's merely a shadow of the real, which is heavenly. And so, simply stated, Jesus is a better high priest because he has a superior sanctuary, one in heaven, which is real. The real, not a copy. And he's seated, which no priest ever, ever thought of doing, for his work was never done. Then he moves to verse 6 and makes a transition to the final point. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he's the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. Okay, what's he saying here? Let's just take the first part. He's obtained a more excellent ministry. That's a tremendous statement. That pretty well sums it all up. He's a better priest all the way down the line. And he's seated. He's in the true sanctuary in heaven. Therefore, he's obtained a more excellent ministry than any of the priests could ever hope to accomplish. This is telling the Jew, why would you want to fool around in the shadows when you could come to the reality? You see? He's saying to the reader, why do you want to just dawdle away in these things that are only copies when you can come to the truth in Jesus Christ and you can have a priest who's in the holy of holies in heaven above, not just in a shadow down here. That's a tremendous message to the Jews as well as to us. Amen. In verse 6 he says, making his transition complete, he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. So if he's superior in a superior sanctuary, then his covenant is also superior. And that's what I want you to see today. He is superior because of his seat, because of his sanctuary, and because of his superior covenant. 
And you see in verses, really from verse 6 all the way through verse 13 here in Hebrews, Hebrews 8, this is primarily quoting from Jeremiah. We don't have to study it in great detail. We'll just look at it. He's the mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. Just that concept of the word mediator. We know the Apostle Paul said to Timothy that we have one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. The word used here for mediator is misites, from misos, which means to be in the middle. The mediator is the one in the middle, standing in the middle between two others, and brings them together. In Galatians 3.19, Paul uses that word misites to speak about Moses. Says Moses is the Mesites of the Old Covenant. He's the one who brought God and man together under the Old Covenant system. But here, the writer says Jesus is the perfect Mesites, the perfect mediator of a better covenant. All that Moses couldn't do because of human weakness, Jesus does. Amen? Jesus brings God and men together perfectly, providing access where the old priesthood could never do that. This covenant is far, far better. Because he is better. Amen? And it's also better if you look at the end of verse 6 because it's established on better what? Promises. Now all covenants are made on the basis of promises. God would promise to do something. That's what a covenant is. And what the promises are of the better covenant are clearly outlined from verses 8 to 12 because it's a direct quote from Jeremiah 31.31. We're going to look at it. It's based on better promises. Look at verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then there'd be no place sought for the second. And at that point, if I was an unbelieving Jew, I would say, that's right. So why are you giving us all this baloney about a second one? What are you, why are you doing this? Are you saying the first one's got faults and problems? What gives you the right to say that? What gives you the right to tell me that there needs to be another covenant? What gives you the right to say the first one had a lot of faults and there's another one coming along? Who says so? So the writer of the book of Hebrews answers those questions and says, God, through Jeremiah, your own prophet, says so. Zap! (laughs) Amen. Just knock them flat on their face with that one. In verse 8 he says, For finding fault with them, he says, who says? God says, through Jeremiah. Finding fault through them, behold, the day is coming, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Hallelujah. That's Jeremiah. That's not new. Your word says to you that the old covenant has problems and God's going to have to get another one. You know, there are Jews today who are hanging on tenaciously to the old covenant. They despise the truth that's preached about the new covenant. They hate that truth. They're not willing to acknowledge that it is in their own prophets, their own beloved and dear prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, who said God is going to write a new covenant. And he did. The first covenant was not faultless. It was weak in the flesh, right? Galatians 3.21. It was excellent for what it was meant to do, which was to point men to Christ. But it could not bring men to God. It was the sign. It was not the train that got them there. Paul said to the Galatians that the law was our taskmaster, our schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ. There needed to be a better covenant. The Jew says, who says so? So the writer says, God says by Jeremiah. 
God prophesied his own words. Jeremiah quotes God directly in verse 8. For he saith, God said it, recorded by Jeremiah, I will make a new covenant. And from there, Jeremiah launches in the very words of God. God speaking. God tells us how the new one's better. They're not always different than the first, but together they make it different. Amen. Let's begin very rapidly here. We're running out of time. We'll begin with the first one. Diaphasy. Now, diaphasy is not too fascinating just to say it. But when we get to it, you'll see it. The normal Greek word, anytime you made an arrangement with anybody, the normal Greek word was sunfisi, sun meaning with an sun meant with it on an equal basis. Normally, in any kind of agreement, sunfisi would be the correct word. It was the word for a marriage covenant. It was the word for all ordinary contracts between two people on an equal level. Diaphasy is not used for an agreement like that. Diaphasy is reserved for wills or making a will. You say, well, why does the Spirit choose diaphasy when it says the Lord will make a new covenant? The reason is this. Sunfisi describes an agreement made by two equals. God at no time considers himself an equal with men. God does not make equal covenants with men. God and man. Now, watch this now. This is a critical point you need to understand. God and man never enter agreements on equal terms. God does not come to us and say, look, here are my terms. And we say, well, here are my terms. And then we kind of give a little, get a little, and it all works all together. No, it doesn't work like that. You can never, you can never ever, at no time, in no way, under any circumstances, make a bargain with God. It's impossible. You can never argue the terms of God's covenant. You can never say, well, now look, God, just listen to me for a minute. If you give a little bit on this thing, I'll adjust a little too. You can't do that. God's the one that makes the covenant. You either accept it or you reject it. You don't change it. Amen? The best illustration of this is a will. That's why diaphesi is reserved for a will. A will is not made on equal terms, right? No, not at all. It's made by one person. And the other person either accepts it or rejects it. You don't have anything to say about it. You can't bargain with it. That's why the word is diaphesi. Our relationship to God is based only on God's terms, never our terms, on God's. He's the author. That's why I say the first feature of the new covenant is, remember, it's God who wrote the new covenant. And people could come along and say, well, I don't see how God could say that. What about over here? This guy believes this. Or what about all the people in China or India or all over the world? People who've never heard of him. I mean, God's got to adjust it to fit all these things. No. God made the rules. He made the covenant on his terms. A man either takes it as is or rejects it. There's no arguments. No negotiation. In the first place, God knows exactly what is right, exactly what is best, and any concession God made would have to be made in the favor of the person being wrong. And he can't do that. He's the author. It's perfect. The second thing about the New Covenant, as we get ready to close, it's different. It's different from the Old. It's not just an attachment to the Old Covenant. You see that in the word new. There are several words in Greek for new. Neos, which means new in the sense of production. And kinos, which means new in the sense of quality. The difference would be between a new car and a new invention. You can say, oh, I have a new car. 
It's not really new in a Kina sense. It's new in the Neo sense because there's a lot of other cars. Yours has four wheels too. You got an engine, a steering wheel, a seat. So it's not a new invention, okay? But if a guy came along and said, I just invented a seven-wheeled car, they say, oh, wow, that's new. That would be Kina's, something that had never existed before, amen? And the new covenant is just like that. In verse 13, it says, Now that which decays and grows old is ready to vanish away. The old covenant vanishes away, decays, vanishes away. It means to obliterate, to completely wipe out. That's what happened to the old covenant. It was totally wiped out. Amen. And that was an important message to the readers of Hebrews because they're hanging on to the old covenant. Amen. So what did we learn about the new covenant? God's the author. It's different. The third thing, the new covenant is with Israel. It's with the Jews. And that's what I meant when I said this morning. God never had a covenant with the Gentiles. And as far as I can see, never will. The new covenant is not made with the church. It's made with the same people the old covenant was made with. It was made with Israel. The church has not replaced Israel, despite doctrines that teach the contrary. And you say, well, what are we doing? Well, we're beneficiaries of the new covenant. Just like Gentiles could be beneficiaries of the old covenant. But notice it couldn't be any clear. I'll make a new covenant with the church. Is that what it says? No. It says with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Amen. Glory to God, we have to close. If you've never received Jesus as your Savior, this is the day and the time to do so. You can only accept what God's offered, or you can reject it. And if you face, if you reject it, you face eternity on your own in the lake of fire with no remedy ever. This is serious business. Not just some nicety we do at the end of the broadcast. This is absolute serious business. If you've never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, to become your Lord, do so now. Just pray this prayer with me. Father, in the name of Jesus, I acknowledge my sinful life. And I ask you, in Jesus' name, to forgive me of my sins because of his sacrifice on the cross. Jesus, I thank you that you are my high priest, that your sacrifice one time paid the price for my sin forever. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Take over my life. Be my Lord, my King, and my Savior. Help me to live my life for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, email me at brotherbob at ftfm.org and let us know. We want to rejoice with you and we got some things we want to send you. Amen. Glory to God. We're, we're out of time for today. Until next time, this is Pastor Robert to reminding you God loves you, we love you, and greater is he who's in you than he that's in this earth. And be blessed in all you do. have just heard a message of encouragement from anointed pastor and teacher Robert Thibodeau with Freedom Through Faith Ministries in Baltimore, Maryland. For more information on the Freedom Through Faith Ministries or to invite Pastor Thibodeau to your church, please visit our website www.ftfm.org That's FTFM for Freedom Through Faith Ministries. Again, that's ftfm.org. Until next Next time, when we gather together around the Word of God, be blessed. And remember, we serve an awesome God.